I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. This is Mike Sealski from The Inquirer, joined as usual by David Murphy from the Philadelphia Daily News. Uh, this is a momentous uh, day for us. It's Wednesday afternoon when we're recording this, and uh, that has nothing to do with Josh Huff, which we're gonna dis- who we're going to discuss later in the show. Um, we're going to have our first Pulitzer Prize winner uh, on the show today, Inga Saffron from The Inquirer, who wrote uh, last week a... Very interesting column about the Temple football situations. Going to be on with us uh, later in the hour. Uh, but for right now, Murph, we got guns. We got Josh Huff. We got marijuana. We got speeding. We got Joel Embiid. We got Matt Stairs. Uh, we got all kinds of stuff happening today. I'm excited, as you can tell by the enthusiasm of your. I just your got response. back from the Novacare complex where Josh Huff was the story of the day. Um, I, I listened to Doug Peterson's press conference. What'd you he think was, about Dougie P's press conference? You know, it, it, it it's funny to me that, and we kind of discussed this months ago. For those Go of ahead. you who Go ahead. are sequestering yourself from all media because of our presidential election, Josh Huff <laughs> was arrested going over the Walt Whitman Bridge at an excessive rate of speed, was arrested by Port Authority police, who I did not realize actually existed, existed <laughs> but now we know. Uh, we also know that it is illegal to possess hollow point ammunition in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, if I was his lawyer, I would be punching myself in the head. Yes. Like, do you ever see the wire where the, the, the guy, like Omar's, uh, or not Omar. Uh, Stringer Bell? Yeah, Stringer Bell's attorney. The whole, the drug gang attorney. Yeah, yep. The Barksdale, uh, the Barksdale gang's attorney. Uh, DeAndre Barksdale in season one gets arrested mm-hmm. and ends up writing a letter to right, right. the victims of the guy, of the guy who was shot because he narked on yes. DeAndre and DeAndre's kind of having this like existential crisis and, mm-hmm. and uh, McNulty and Bunk are like, why don't you, why don't you write how sorry you are? What happened to, to those kids father? Yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, the lawyer comes in and like smacks him in the head and he's <laughs> like, what do I tell you guys all the time? Don't say anything. As far as I can tell, Josh Huff just kind of, the yeah. proper response is, I don't smell anything. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> not, hey, not, hey, here's my vacuum sealed container of weed and my handgun. And my handgun, which are both in the same spot. Th- to, to answer your question about, if you listen to Doug Peterson's press conference um, this mor- late this morning, he got peppered with questions about this. And this brings up one of my pet peeves about, and I was not there, but I've been in these situations before, and I've actually written about this before. This brings up one of my pet peeves about 21st century media, which is because these press conferences tend to be televised nowadays, they don't take place you know, around a lunch table at Veterans Stadium anymore. You know, The coach is behind a podium, and they're in an auditorium, and there's TV cameras. It's and brought ev- to you by Toyota. Right, and everybody knows they're going to be on camera. The expectations, I think wrongly, for the kinds of questions that... Expectations on the part of the fan base. Fan base. uh, For the type of questions that they think we ought to ask and expectations for the media members themselves of what kind of questions they ought to be asking get thrown wildly out of proportion. Like, we are supposed to be there to gather information. And instead, this becomes like... The Inquisition. Yeah, like we're 75 
district attorneys from every Law and Order episode. He's a witch. Yeah. Burn him. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you know, basically all of us asking Doug Peterson if he ordered the code red. And it's like, exactly, dude, you know, Doug Peterson, you know, did, didn't say goodbye to Josh Huff when Josh Huff left the building the last time he was there. You know, Josh Huff is a grown man. And, you know, I'm not quite sure what kind of answers Doug Peterson was expected to give. You know, there are certainly questions you can ask about the Eagles' personnel decisions this offseason, bringing in guys with some checkered pass, and now having a series of incidents take place that might possibly fray at the, you know, the the fabric of the team and, and make it harder for them to win on Sundays. But, you know, all in all, like, I don't know what people expected out of Doug Peterson. And, you know, if Josh Huff worked in any other profession, aside from, you know, being an NFL player we wouldn't know about this. I mean, it just, it wouldn't be that huge a deal. I agree with you, but I'm going to blow you up for a second okay. because I thought that was my argument when... J- Julia Okafor. Yes. yes. I, I, that thought crossed my mind. And and the caveat I'll make with the Sixers is this. And he didn't even have hollow points. You're right. All he had was oh, he, well, hollow they didn't fists. Fi- yeah. <laughs> um, he no, had a hollow... Yeah, no. yeah, but what I would say with respect to... Um, Okafor and the Sixers. The only reason I thought of that is because as you're speaking, in addition to paying no attention to what I was paying saying, 100% attention <laughs> to what you were saying, I'm, I'm looking at Joel Embiid's stats and salivating yes. right now. But um, anyway, go ahead. Here's, here's the difference. And, and you we make will talk valid, about Joel Embiid. Yeah, and, we, and you make a valid point about that. And, and we did go round and round on the podcast about that months ago, back in November, last November. Round and round. <laughs> round and Pac, Tupac. Tupac probably had some hollow points. I was, see, I would have gone with, see, again, difference in generations. You spin me right round. Like a record. Is that baby. Billy Idol? No, that was Dead or Alive. I feel like they all sound the same. Like Billy Idol, Morrissey, Brian Eno. Like, don't they all sound the Bruce same? Bruce Springsteen. They pretty much all no. sound the same. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. My point is, anyway, back Kevin to, Cooney just had a heart attack. <laughs> back to Okafor. Um But don't Morrissey and and uh and Billy Idol sound the same? To, uh, not in music. Billy no. Idol was more of a headbanger. Morrissey was kind of White Wedding. Yeah. That's not Morrissey, that's Billy Idol. Who am I thinking of? Who sang like uh uh, Brian, he, he collaborated with Brian Eno on a song because I listened to it. I think it's awesome. Who did? I don't know if it was Morrissey or not. I don't know either. Can I make my point about yeah, Julia yeah. Okafor? The distinction. I got something else one, to Google. Now yeah, while you're number talking. one, Okafor is nineteen, which you can argue, yeah, it's a man, but not quite a man. Um, Josh Huff has been in the league a couple, been in the NFL a couple of years. Okafor is a rookie. You could argue that makes a bit of a difference. And the other thing is, is that the Sixers went out of their way to bring in young guys and basically say, like, we're not going to set up any kind of structure, um, you know, inside or outside the locker room that might prevent something like that happening from happening. And when you specifically uh, and explicitly are trying to bring in young guys, you've got to do something to kind of cushion them, I would argue. The Eagles aren't that way. There's a bunch of veteran guys in that locker room who should be telling Josh Huff to not be dumb. I would argue that your argument to my argument is not the best argument you could have made. Because what's if, the best? If argument I was I if I faced the charges that I charged you with, I would have said the Eagles don't have their entire future invested in Josh Huff. There you go. That's the other one too. Now, if Carson, now the Sixers segue, didn't have their entire future invested in Julia Okafor. I either. think it is interesting because now again, I was the one guy at the Novacare Complex today who just did not care, and maybe <laughs> it's just because I'm devoid of all feeling inside. But probably. I like I care about the football game, mm-hmm. you know, and as long as Josh Huff isn't like spraying a parking lot with his hollow points, I really don't care that he has them mm-hmm. because for better or for worse, I would argue for worse. But again, such as life in a representative democracy. 
49 other states allow you to carry hollow point ammunition. Right. The you know, only not, one that doesn't is New Jersey. Right. So, and, and it should also be pointed out that Josh Huff comes from a state called Texas, whose gun laws, I believe, are... <laughs> I believe lax. Texans like their guns yeah. and their ammunition. Yeah, they do. Um, and he also went to college in a state where a bunch of armed white guys took over a federal compound this past winter. And he's also a. Multi- and I'm just, I'm just saying, like, he's also a multi-million-dollar athlete who can be a target for people who might. Yeah, you know. I mean, I think, like, honestly, I think, like, look, we tried the Wild West. We all decided that we don't want to live in a society where you have to carry a piece on you at all times and perhaps fight duels to settle arguments. Uh, so I would argue that our society would be a better place if nobody felt as if they had to carry handguns in their, uh, next to their Wawa big gulp. Except the police. Uh, I mean, look, we're not going to go down this no, we're not. rabbit hole, but we're not. what I do know is we do live in a country where, for better or for worse, guns are accepted as a normal part of life. And I think it's a little disingenuous to all of a sudden crucify Josh Huff because he did not happen to read the New Jersey penal code before he moved into the state. Right. Now, look, look, I said this today talking to Mark Eckel mm-hmm. because, again, I get it. Like when you hear someone gets pulled over with a handgun and hollow points and weed, your first thought is like, if that guy sh- got pulled over while showing up to date my daughter, mm-hmm. I would not be very happy about it. Right. But such is life in America. Do you know what I'm saying? No, like, absolutely. Like I, how am I gonna how am I gonna tell Josh Huff that he shouldn't do what a bunch of dudes on a ranch in Arizona did? Do you know what I'm saying? Like Like he is first of all, he has the right to own a gun. He does. Right. Um that's one thing. And so I th- I, I think there's an element with a story like this that there's a cultural aspect to it. You just touched on it that is particularly in play in a northeast, generally, for lack of a better, liberal city like Philadelphia, which is that you hear someone carrying a gun in an area where guns are not necessarily a huge part of the everyday culture, as they are in parts of the South, parts of the Midwest. Unless you're talking about my guns. (laughs) Well, of course. Um, Bathroom's that way, buddy. (laughs) Um, 1,001. I don't know if you heard me. I just did 1,000. Yes, I know. Um, trying to make my point. You you get silly every time I try to make a serious point. Sorry. Um, I get silly every time somebody says the word guns. <laughs> so there's I, that. It makes me think of Anchorman. Okay. And then you hear hollow point bullets and everybody thinks, ooh, that's bad without really knowing what the characteristics of a hollow point bullet are. Well, tell us because I think it's very interesting because I just w- read the entire Wikipedia article and I learned a few things. Yeah. For one thing. Um, not not. None of none of whose edits I'm sure came from NRA. Not at all. Servers. Not at all. Um, <laughs> I actually look, looked at some sites beyond uh, Wikipedia today. Number one, hollow point bullets. Their defining characteristic is that they they inflict an awful lot of damage when they make contact with the fleshy thing that is supposed to be their target, whether it's a you know a bear in the woods or you know an intruder in your home or whatever the case may be. Which, if you want to defend yourself, is the kind of bullet you want to have. Secondly, they're I think you you and I discussed and pointed this out before the show that um, they're the only kind of bullet that can be used where in England uh, for hunting because they are considered to be safer. Yeah, that was the most interesting thing to me. And again, this was this this was actually the factoid that I wondered was was added in uh, by the maybe NRA headquarters yeah. because they do fight tooth and nail against hollow point bands. Yeah, you know, um, 
and again, that's what, when I say represent, like that's, we live in a world where 50% of the country agrees with an organization that fights that, that in their perfect world, Joshoff would have done nothing wrong except right. speed and carry weed, right. you know? And that's the other good thing. That's the other interesting thing. If, I would argue it's more than half the country. Look okay. at polls, yeah. If Josh, if Josh Huff had been pulled over in Philadelphia, the weed wouldn't even be a criminal violation. Right. Pres- assuming it was under whatever, an ounce mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, you know, really, one can argue, and frankly, one can argue this about everybody who happens to be in his situation, is that the worst thing he did was go to New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> And we've all made that mistake. We've all that. And there are two other factors before we, we kind of um, talk about these numbers that, I'm, lo- the numbers that I'm looking that, yeah. hungrily at. T- two other things, which, you know, in terms of the reaction to the Josh Huff story, which if you have been on social media or turned on talk radio, um, has been not varied, which is, you know, the Eagle should cut Josh Huff yesterday and he's an idiot and he's a moron and how dare he have a gun and th- those sort of things. Two what he thi- should have said. Yeah. He should have said, I, I was going goose hunting. Yeah. <laughs> Two things on that. Number one, I-, I guarantee you that part of this is, part of the reaction to this is flavored by the fact that it was Josh Huff who was regarded as an underachieving third round draft pick who isn't, who beyond the occasional ability to take a kickoff back for 50 plus yards really isn't contributing very much to the Eagles. Exactly. We, we That's an important point. Yeah. Like if at a certain been- point where it's like if, if, if this was Friday and we said Josh Huff just got caught with his zipper down, should he be cut? The, the answer amongst the Eagles fan base would be a resounding yes. Yeah. Um, you know, but as so I'm not sure how 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 the hollow point bullets and the gun and the weed really affect. Right. They want him out of here anyway. And and I'm sure as we as we said before the show. If and frankly, a, a sizable minority of the fan base would like the Eagles to respond to Josh Huff's arrest by cutting Nelson Nelson Aguilar. But yeah, but go ask those same fans. Like, if you know, Josh, if you knew today that Sunday against the Giants, Josh Huff was going to take a kickoff back for a touchdown, ask them then, if in those conditions, would you want him to be cut? I guarantee some of them would say, eh, maybe not. Maybe you give him a second chance. And that, you know, ask them if Carson Wentz had been pulled over for speeding and had a gun in his car, what the reaction would be. And that segues to the second point, which is, you know, a, a little more third railish, which is, you know, well, how much how yeah. much of this reaction is, you know, I don't like guns and how much of it is I don't like a black guy with a gun. I don't like, you know, it's the whole freedom for the for me, but not for the thing. If we're going to if you're going to acknowledge that people have the right to defend themselves, which I do, you know, you be consistent about it. I have no issue you know, with Josh Huff carrying a legally obtained and permitted firearm. I don't. But I guarantee you there are people out there nervous about this because he's, you know, stereotypically threatening. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. You know who else is stereotypically threatening, Mike? To players on a basketball court? Uh, a seven foot three friend of mine named Joel Embiid. <laughs> Dude, he, he looked, is he, right uh, up until the last minute of that game on Tuesday night. He looked kind of good. He looked kind of good. I I will go so so far as to say, if jo- if you could guarantee me, which obviously you can't, that Joel Embiid plays ten years in the NBA and averages thirty minutes a night, he will be a Hall of Famer. I just don't think there's any way 
this guy is anything less than what we've seen thus far. And I think that logic suggests he's only going to get better because when he goes down, on the, I mean, the, the, the big weakness in his game right now is with his back to the basket on a low block against a bigger body, as we saw against Ibaka and Vucevic last mm-hmm. night. Like, he still looks like me. So I play basketball. Mm-hmm. Not nearly as well as Joel Embiid. But I'm I play I play enough where when I go a long time without playing and I get back out on the court, I feel like I'm drunk mm-hmm. for the first <laughs> Yeah. three or four times I play like I've never used my legs before to do what I'm asking them to do right now and when you look at Embiid that's what he looks like he, he looks like a guy who just got off like he's, he's still getting his sea legs like well, he, he well, looks like a guy who just stood up from a cross-country flight like he can't he, can't, he doesn't have all his motor skills yet no, and he's I, still averaging 17 points at 20 minutes well that's what you saw last last night Tuesday night in that loss to Orlando and and everybody's kind of missing the forest for the trees I think look it was a bad loss it was a game the Sixers could have won and they didn't and Embiid turned the ball over twice in the final minute. And everybody's looking at, well, why do you have him catching the ball at the top of the key? Why blah, blah, blah. Look, if you, with about four minutes to go in that game, he is gassed. He's gassed. He's out of breath. He, it, it's The only thing keeping him on the floor is the fact that they could win this game, and they, the only chance they have is by keeping him out there. So he doesn't bend over quite as quickly to get the loose ball, and he makes the sloppy. He does not. He's not a great screen setter anyway, but he sets a sloppy screen, and that kind of stuff happens when you're fatigued. And he is trying to play his way back into basketball shape. But you're right. You watch him in the early parts of a game. Once he gets into the flow of action, there isn't anything he can't do out there. No, well, I would argue there is right now. He still does not have his post moves yet. Like he, he still is not as coordinated as he's going to be with okay. more court time. Like right now he's pr- primarily a, a front to the basket yeah. player. You yeah. know, he's a jump. I mean, not a jump shooter, but uh, you know, he's not power dribbling and dunking on guys right. yet, you right. know, but he power dribbled on Vucevic to get a layup to put them up four with about, I mean, it was a really impressive, right. You know, post power move to the basket. But, and that was kind of the last good thing he did in the game. But at some point he's going to be able to do that with regularity. Right. right. You know, I, I'm just thinking early in the game, I don't, I don't know if it was Vucevic or Vucevic. How do you pronounce his name? No, Vucevic. That's Vucevic. Um, you know, he's trying to back him down and he was throwing his body into him and he just couldn't, he ended up, you know, fading away and, mm-hmm. and hitting the shot, which is that, that shot is completely unguardable. Right. You know, the thing is like, usually that's the last thing that post guys add. You know, yeah, and he's got like that. most guys are like Oka, if you look if you watch Okafor, Okafor doesn't have that yet, right? You know, right? Okafor in college was was completely a a back to the basket on the low block player, and he had amazing mm-hmm. low block moves, and that's why, right? You know, again, he was drafted where he was, and B doesn't have that yet. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing now when you see Okafor when he does when he's you know undersized at times in the NBA, he can't he can't right. do that all the time, right? And B already has what you need. To counter that, right. now it's just getting hit, getting back to what a seven foot three person should well, be. Well, and then that's just it. Is you know that's going to take time because basically what he needs to do is it's like a piece of meat that kind of needs to be banged on to be tenderized a little bit. Like, yeah, you just get used to that contact. Like, get 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 accustomed to. It's being, more footwork than anything. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's he just it, it takes it just takes muscle memory. He's got to rebuild the muscle memory in his lower half, mm-hmm. you know, and he doesn't have that yet. Like he's yeah. he's got. It looks like his legs are asleep. He look, you know, he looks like like Miles Austin trying to run at times. You know, he just <laughs> you has love Miles Austin. He just has. I said I tweeted last year. It was like I would say if I were to compile a, a first team all David Murphy tweets of 2015, 
right in the running would be my tweet that said Miles Austin runs like his legs are asleep because mm-hmm. he does, mm-hmm. you know. And I think Abid at times he looks like he's got jelly legs. Yeah, like, he just looks like again, go go. Don't do anything athletic for a long time, and then go try to do it. Right, and you'll literally feel like you're drunk. Like holy crap, I've never actually run up and down a basketball court before. Yeah, yeah. it's going to be you know now that they made this trade on Tuesday, getting Jeremy Grant out, getting a shooter in. Um, you know, I guess the hope is that that's going to open the floor up a little bit more for him. Um, I mean, because it's been it's been a little tough on him just for the first few games because they haven't been able to hit an outside shot. Now Dario Saric, you know, played very well Tuesday night, started hitting some of those shots, um, you know, hitting those long twos, a few of them, which are supposed to be the worst shot you can take in the NBA, but it, def- it definitely seemed to kind of... He seems to like it a lot, though. Yeah, and it, and it, but it does seem to open things up, you know, I mean, and that's a debate, you know, it's funny, uh, Villanova's season starts next week, and um, Jay Wright... Whoa! Is, sorry, that's our alarm. Um, uh, Jay Wright is a big proponent of the long two. In, in terms of what it does to a defense uh, and that in having to account for it. I know this goes back to me thinking Jay Wright is not a very good basketball coach, but that's, go ahead. that's national champion Jay Wright right. to you. Um, to me, what you saw in the first half last night was what this team can look like when it has a couple guys hitting three point shots. And I almost feel if Sarich is going to become anything more than a rotational player in the NBA, that's going to be his, mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he has, he, has, the make, that he has the makings of a good jump shot and he's got the size to get it off yes. against the kind of defenders that he's going to be facing in the NBA. Yeah, what, what was interesting, uh, Brian Seltzer, who's uh, the SixersNBA.com correspondent, had an interesting uh, post on the team's website in which he talked to Saric about Saric getting accustomed to the spacing uh, and the dimensions of an NBA floor. That when he would pop out, for instance, on an international court or in Europe, because the three-point line was closer when he would pop out, that was a three. Now he's popping out and it's not a three, and he's kind of like looking to check his feet. Yeah, out you actually. You, they mentioned on the broadcast. You actually saw it on. I think his first, his second three-pointer. Mm-hmm. You actually saw him look down at his yeah. feet to make sure that he was right behind the line and because he clearly is up to speed on his analytics and and yes, money ball because <laughs> uh, he but, does not want to. Right, but that's something that hey, you play him every game and he gets more accustomed to it and more accustomed to it and he keeps working on it and hope if you're the Sixers you have to hope over time that he's able to stretch his game out so that 23 feet doesn't become a big deal for him to shoot but to me my my point more so is that even with out Ben Simmons Mm -hmm. this team is only a couple shooters away from being a playoff contender I agree with that wholeheartedly and that's amazing to me because of Embiid Uh, you know and Sergio Rodriguez is another guy who to me has been a revelation he's been fine far. yeah he's been all, i mean he's, he's been, been more than fine yeah. he's been he's he's better than ish smith yeah oh he's he is better than ish the greatest point guard of all time ish smith <laughs> the only reason they won 10 games last year ish smith um yeah that's right it, it's funny you look at the stats from last night uh nick stask has played something like 20 minutes or 22 minutes and was a minus 20 um and they ended up losing the game by two points he's the only three-point shooter i've ever seen who can't th- shoot three pointers yeah it's it's um He's a nice kid, but it's it's rough out there for him right now. So, but I think you're right, and I think one thing that the NBA kind of teaches you is is that the bottom can fall out of a good team relatively quickly too. Um, so if they're able to make a move here, you know whether it's in the draft or trading an Okafor or Noel or packaging something, um, I don't think they're that far away. It sounds silly to say, 
um, after you lose a but game like a, they lost Tuesday night. But that's the nature of the NBA. I mean, it it's really amazing is. to me. And again, all of this is predicated on Embiid staying yes. healthy. But I'm far more optimistic about that now than I now that he's playing. I mean, there don't seem to be a ton of of. Cons- I mean, the fact that he's playing 20 minutes a night already. Yeah, you know, it's it's. You know, it's interesting to me, and he's, he's, he's playing hard. I love this about the guy. He plays hard. He does. <laughs> he plays he does. Uh, And so does Sergio. I mean, there was this team is going to be a very fun team to watch if they get that. You yes. know, if, if Simmons comes back and he's that guy, or if they, you know, they surround. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all they need is, I mean, even Jared Bayless, it'll be interesting to see what he looks like if, if he comes. Is, is he, is there still a chance he comes back? Yeah, there's a chance. I didn't miss anything, I, did no, I? No, but I think that, that his injury might be more serious than people are But I guess e- even if you just, you know, put a guy, I'm trying to think of a, the guy it might be like a JJ Redick mm-hmm. or a you know um you know just like a, a middle tier shooter number two guard yeah. like that that's Embiid opens up the court that much and you saw it it's just amazing to me how big of an impact this guy already is having mm-hmm. on this team I mean they look like a real NBA team and yeah. whatever we can you know I get it like people want to see them beat the magic and not just play hard but like hey They've got a five. They've got a starting five right now. Where if they had depth, you know, they could very easily be two and one. Yes. You know, yeah, um, they could. I mean, they, they played. If, they outplayed the 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 uh, Thunder. You know, yeah. for a quarter and a half. You know, no, more than that. Yeah, more than that. It's just that when once you get that team, once once neither Embiid, Rodriguez, nor you know, maybe just those two aren't on the court. It's amazing how how quickly they revert right. back to you know. Right. A shooter's big big shot. Rob is your your. Number one player on the uh, Covington. I mean, yeah, on the court. Look, the, it, it's amazing how bad they look. But. Yeah, I mean, look, they're missing key guys. They have a lot of new guys out there. That doesn't mean that they should be competing for a playoff spot now, but it does mean that the team they are now is not going to be the team they are twenty games from now, forty games from now, sixty games from now. So let's see, you know. But there's there's at least something there. Certainly with Embiid, hopefully with Simmons, um, maybe with some of the other component parts, and. They're not winning ten games again. Like this is not a tanking situation. No, it's as just of, not. As of um, as of Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon, at, when we're recording this, Joel Embiid, at twenty-two years old and a two and a half year layoff from competitive basketball, is averaging seventeen point three points, two point seven blocks, six point three rebounds in twenty one twenty one minutes. minutes, and he's shooting forty percent from three point range. Is that all? Jeez. Um, per 36 minutes, that equals out to... This, now, these are ridiculous numbers. Yeah. 29.7 points, 4.6 blocks. <laughs> That's insane. 2.3 assists, which you can see. because, mm-hmm. And that could be double if he right. had some... You know, if Nick Stauskas yeah. could shoot yes. 35% from three-point range, I mean, that might be double right now. And 10.9 rebounds. I mean, that's this is why, and I don't understand why people were struggled to, to grasp it in the in the abstract when guys like me and you said you do not pick an Eric Gordon or an Alfred Payton right. in order to pass on a guy. Was Alfred Payton? No, who was the guard? Uh, I think it was Payton. Okay, well, it was the same. It was re- the same draft. Regardless, you don't you don't you do not pass on a player like jo- with the potential to be what we've seen through three games out of Joel Embiid in order to take an Eric Gordon or right. an Alfred Payton. Alfred Payton and Eric Gordon did not change do not change the no. dynamic of a game. You could take them off the court last night and you know maybe that's the same game minus some really bad hair. Yeah. Um 
Yeah, but Embiid is a is a totally different animal. A totally different animal. And again, he he's like, you know, what he reminds me of just his t- like I in terms of his touch is like Sam Perkins, mm. uh, but he's bigger, bigger, more athletic, yes. faster, yes, all of that, yes. you know. But but I mean to to have that as the icing on top of what will eventually be a very good low post game. That's I'm telling you right now, I've said it to Keith Pompey and Bob Cooney, the guys who cover the Sixers for us regularly. Um, given Embiid's personality and given his skill, if he stays healthy, he's going to own this city. He is going to own this city in a way that, honestly, I think people thought 10, 12, 14 years ago Donovan McNabb was going to and never really did. Um, that Allen Iverson kind of sort of did at times. Um Embiid has that potential. He has that magnetism when you talk to him, at least within a group setting and when he knows the cameras are on. Um, and he certainly has that ability. And he, he's got the energy. He yeah. plays hard. Yeah. Um, two quick things before we wrap it up here. One, I, and I know he didn't play last night, but I just don't see where Jaleel Okafor fits into this thing at all. I'm not sure either. I'm really not sure. I mean, you um, can't... Yeah, I mean... It's just, the, the, look, it also drives home Embiid and Okafor rotating. I mean, it, it, it really is a stark contrast in how limited Okafor's game is despite yes. the numbers that he puts up and despite the obvious offensive skill set that he has. I mean, like, Joel Embiid is a player who you build an offense around. Your entire offense runs through that guy. Mm-hmm. Whereas Okafor is just kind of like out there. Yeah getting his points and doing his thing. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah, like it's, no, it's, it's And totally it's very hard. I did not expect that. I thought that I was a big Jaleel Okafor guy at Duke. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very scared by what I saw to the NCAA tournament from him. Clearly, I would, I would, you know, rather have Porzingis or, or yeah. anybody. But it's just, where does he fit? Yeah. You know, I mean, he what? doesn't. He doesn't. He's he, he, to me, would fit better in the mid to late 90s NBA where it's pound the ball on the block. You know, if you have Michael Jordan, you give it to Michael Jordan, everybody else gets out of the way. The, the game is beyond that in a lot of ways now. And Embiid, if you're going to build yourself around a big man, is kind of the embodiment of that in a perfect world. You know, can pass, you know, can take a shot from the outside, can put the ball on the floor a little bit, and can post somebody up. Okafor is kind of like you dump the ball into him and you just get out of his way and let him do his thing, and that's it. Well, that was fine in the mid-1990s when Patrick Ewing was that guy for the Knicks. The game ain't that way anymore. And frankly, I don't know that either. One, like, Noel, I got bad news for you, brother. Yeah. Like, you, your spot on this team, and it, it it's a spot he fit he could fit very well, is if Embiid finally gets to a point where he's playing 30 minutes a night, you're the 15-minute-a-night guy who right. is out there with Rodriguez, uh, Covington and you're running you know like you're mm-hmm. like the defense and running team yeah you know but Noel he doesn't fit on the court with Embiid either no, you know nobody no. I mean when you have a Joel Embiid you don't need a Noel and an Okafor and right. it's gonna be very interesting to see I mean they should trade at this point maybe you trade them trade both. them both yeah you know? maybe you trade them both if, if you think Rashard Holmes is gonna be can develop into something and he's getting minutes now to kind of show what he could do whatever it may be who knows I mean I just think you have to trade Noel because the role that he works best in is a role you're not going to need for at least two or three years. No, you you trade Noel to a team that's a playoff team that thinks it can right. make a push and needs a defensive boost off the bench. Um, 
you know, he's a poor man. He gets used all the time, but it's true. He's a poor man's Joachim Noah, and he's even a little better offensively. Yeah, like it's it's almost self evident that they should trade Noel because by the time they have to make a decision on resigning him, yeah, that, it's going to be before they right, need him. Exactly. So like it, you know, and and then Okafor at this point, I would say trade him too yeah. because you might actually get more value for right. him. You know, and while he has more of an obvious role on this team, it doesn't. It's it's a role that does, is never going to make sense once they get. Right. Good. Right. Does that make sense? No, it does because and he's. If you're going to bring him off the bench, you're not going to bring him off the bench to to be the entire offense exactly. while he's in there. Exa- that and that's the thing. That's perfectly put. Like that's what I realized. Just that first game mm-hmm. when Embiid went down for the first time and Okafor came in, and it was like, oh, we still have to run our offense through this big man, but yeah. this is not a big man who should be, you know, right, running, getting an offense run through. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And then last last thing. I thought it was very interesting that the Phillies signed Matt Stairs as their it? hitting coach. And my first reaction was probably like, this was Wednesday afternoon. I just found this out coming into the office. And my first reaction was probably like a lot of people's reaction. One, thank God he's off the broadcast. No, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I actually, I, I kind of liked him. He I got thought, a lot better. He got a lot I better. thought Matt Stairs got a lot better. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think Jamie Moyer was the weak link in that first year's broadcast. Oh, God. I think, I think, uh, awful. I think both of them actually improved a lot this year. Um, we talked about this. Yeah, we did. Anyway, my first reaction was, what? Like, (laughs) Matt Stairs just swung from his, you know, his rear end, rear end the entire thing. And he would, laugh about it yeah you know and, and say that's what there, he does yeah i'm yeah. going up there with un, one thought and it's to hit the ball as far as i can so clearly the phillies know this which is interesting to me because so that makes you start thinking well why did they mm-hmm. hire matt stairs to be their hitting coach and it's fascinating because all throughout the, the charlie manual reign you know charlie's thing was find a ball you can drive and mm-hmm. drive it mm-hmm. you know none of this and we always heard they should play more small ball. Yeah. You know, and the whole time I would, this is when I was covering the Phillies. Mm. I would say people, dude, like be careful what you wish for. Right. Small ball sucks. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference between needing three hits to score one run it's, and needing one hit to score. Yeah, three I mean, yeah, runs. it's basic math. Yeah. You know, I mean, everyone's very glad Matt stairs wasn't up there bunting in game, uh, <laughs> game five or four of against the yeah. Dodgers. Anyway, in 2008. So to me, it's interesting because it's telling me that, they want their hitter they they want their hitters to change radically change their approach yeah and it's interesting because Ryan Sandberg and even Pete McCannon this year you know when i think of Cesar Hernandez and Freddie Galvis the talk was always you know put the ball on the ground yeah I don't like Matt Stairs is not a guy who's going to be coaching people to to put the ball on the ground no but he he did strike me the one thought i had was he might be the kind of guy who could coach Mikhail Franco to look for the right pitch I, to hit. And that's exactly where that's I think Matt Stairs is here to teach Michael Franco, Adubel Herrera, assuming he's back, JP Crawford, Nick Tommy Williams. Joseph, Nick Williams, how to get a, a major a hittable major league fastball and what to do with it once you get it. Yeah. And I think that's fascinating. Like, yeah. I think that's very, very interesting. I think that's a radical departure from what um, uh, you know what they how what they've, they've been, been. how yeah. they've been approaching this position. Yeah, and again, yeah. it's a hitting coach. It's the guy it basically exists to be fired. You know, right. he's just another level in between. You know, level, another level of job security for the yeah. manager. But but yeah, it's it's funny though how pitching coaches become fixtures and hitting coaches don't. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's because you you can't teach a guy who's been hitting his whole life how to hit differently. Right. You know. Right. But what you can do 
again is train his brain a little bit train his brain a little bit and and the Phillies talked about this a lot especially with J.P. Crawford because if you look at his numbers slugging percentage is almost like identical to his on-base percentage because and it's something that Dominic Brown struggled to do when when he was up here which was wait for your pitch but once you do get your pitch don't miss it don't well not even don't miss it but don't half ass it, mm-hmm. you know, like do you got one shot, yeah. you know, like, yeah, if you're going to sh- like striking out's fine, but you know, attack, right. you know what I'm saying? It's yep. like, it's almost like Jim Schwartz. Like yeah. you, you, you got to attack your pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I feel like the message coming from Ryan Sandberg and, and, um, you know, even maybe Charlie Manuel at the end was, you know, hit for contact, yeah. yada, yada, yada. Yeah. So that, that's we'll interesting see. to me. We'll, see. We'll, we'll have another Phillies, but we've got a lot of. Got a lot of stuff going I feel on. Like we, I could, we haven't even scratched the flyer surface. We got, you know, your favorite Big Five basketball starting oh. next, <laughs> starting next week. Um, but we've got something interesting coming up next. Yeah, we're going to have Inga, Inga Saffron will be joining us momentarily, and we're going to make a pivot as as the buzzword is these days. And, and we're going we're gonna to talk about the Temple Stadium, its architectural implications, and its uh, kind of sociological implications on the North Philadelphia neighborhood. That it will be, uh, it will be in. So stay tuned for Inga Saffron. Great conversation coming up next. Well, we have a real treat today on this podcast. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, we are kind of breaking new ground in that for the first time on not another Philly sports talk show, we are graced with the presence of a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, Inga Saffron, the architecture critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, is here with us. Inga, say hello to everybody. Hello, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I think architecture and sports are a winning combination. So do we. Um, and, and Murph- In fact, we say that every week. That's actually the motto of this oh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's a great slogan. <laughs> Murph and I have been... Um, we'll have to think of more of these. Yes, we do. You know. um, Murph and I have been talking about this. But in seriousness, this. I, this could be a recurring segment because I, I agree with her. And, and the reason we have her on is a, a recurring story. It's going to you know be in the public eye for a long time, which is... Uh, Murph and I have discussed having you on the show and wanted to have you on the show for a while uh, to talk about the Temple football situation. Uh, and you gave us the opportunity last week when you wrote a really incisive, you know, really well-reported and thorough, as all your pieces are, uh, piece about the neighborhood around Temple University and the potential effects of building a football stadium uh, in that neighborhood in North Philadelphia. And you did what, which is a, which was a very simple and yet brilliant thing, which is you walked around the neighborhood and you talked to people. Um, tell us why you decided to do the column now and kind of a synopsis of what your findings were. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've been following the story, which um, the sports writers here have really um, run with, and um, we've had a a couple of really good stories Frank Fitzpatrick's story originally mm-hmm. um, looking at um, other other uh, universities like Temple mm-hmm. that built stadiums and then discovered that like they weren't paying for themselves and Mike Jensen has written a lot of good stories so I, I, David's I, Dave's done some really and Dave good has stuff done, yeah. done some good stuff Aww. I didn't mean Aww, to shucks. leave you out no. um, <laughs> uh, so you I have would, to acknowledge the hosts first yeah, Inga. Sorry, that's sorry. how it works <laughs> So I, you know, I've been following all all of these uh, reports, and all you know, of course, you know, they're they're mostly from you know a sports point of view, 
um, Gil, Gil Gall, who wrote um, Billion Dollar Ball, did a really excellent op-ed about it. So, you know, I felt, you know, that my area of expertise, uh, that I could use that to just take a look at this really giant project that I think will, you know, have a tremendous impact on Temple and the whole city. And um, so, you know, as I say in the column, I, I you know, lots of people have commented um, on the various impacts of, you know, um, investing so much of, of, a, of a university like Temple, investing so much money in a big football stadium and how it would Im- impact academics and how it would um, impact um, non-varsity sports, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to look at its physical impacts mm-hmm. because- That's your that, expertise. That's, that's what I do. So um, I, you know, I, I'd actually been going to some community meetings and talking to people, um, but I, you know, I like to do these columns, you know, I like to, you know, hit the crest of the wave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I didn't want to do it in the summer when everyone was away. And then I started talking to people from Temple and they said, oh, we're going to do this. We're doing this big traffic study and it's going to come out at the end of October. And then, you know. October ends and there's there's no traffic study and I thought this could go on for a long time so you know I said well you know let me let me write something anyway and um, and I did go up to the neighborhood because this is how I do all my Mm -hmm. columns I feel it's really important to to go to the site because you really can't understand a building until you see the things around it uh, or a proposed building until Mm -hmm. you see its context so I, 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 I biked up to uh, Temple and I uh, biked around a lot of streets and I stopped and I t- talked to people and there were loads of um, signs that said no stadium in people's windows and I knocked on doors and talked mm-hmm. to people outside and you know spent a lot of time thinking about how it would be to have a two block wide mm-hmm. building in the middle of a pretty dense urban neighborhood. and. Your conclusion was not so good. Not so good. Um, <laughs> I think it's a really unusual thing what Temple is trying to do. Um, yeah, you mentioned that in your column. You said that Temple is, uh, the line that jumped out at me was, uh, of course I didn't underline it, but you said something about it's, it's unprecedented, virtually unprecedented in, in, a dense, in a dense urban environment. The one maybe parallel you found was Tulane down yeah. in New Orleans. Um, did you find anything else besides so, so well, what's the closest that, that you've come so so it was it was it was the people at temple who actually raised the Tulane comparison and they actually uh, flew a whole bunch of neighborhood people down to see that school and that football stadium I have not been to Tulane I did you know I did the Google Earth thing mm-hmm. um, which is great and I read a couple articles about it um, and it it's not really a comparison as far as I can tell with Philadelphia. I mean, most cities, you know, apart from maybe New York or Chicago, um, have much more suburban kinds of neighborhoods where everything is, is spread out. I mean, it's it's pretty rare. I mean, I, I didn't, I think I had a, a weasel word qualifying that, that <laughs> statement in my column that it's almost there unpre- you go. Yeah. unprecedented. So I can't say, you know, no one has ever put a football stadium um, in a neighborhood as dense as a Philadelphia row house neighborhood, but it's, it's pretty rare. Uh, after I wrote the piece, someone said, what about the University of Cincinnati, which I, I have been to, mm-hmm. and their football stadium? That is a huge campus 
uh, pretty self-contained. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, University of Cincinnati is not in downtown Cincinnati. It's not in downtown Cincinnati. It's a very different condition. Um, so, you know, I just think it makes it way more difficult. It, and I know, you know, um, I learned a few things after the column came out, and, mm-hmm. and this is the what I, I the fact that I regret most not knowing before I wrote it. Temple used to have a stadium. Hmm. Um, and that stadium was was located on the Cheltenham border. Yes. Um, really? And um, and they, they closed it in 1978 to move down to the vet. Yes. Um, but that stadium was on the edge of a big highway mm-hmm. across from a park and a giant shopping center. And it was a very different condition and you know i I live not far from franklin field Mm -hmm. and if you look at that stadium you know it's in a very edge condition next to a big highway next to a river no housing around it um you know that works fine right Uh, Right. it's right off the highway or you know we know that the link um well while it's near a highway it's also near some housing we know people there have often been unhappy but it's still kind of on the edge this temple stadium would be right in the middle and i think that's what distinguishes it yeah two things i want to get to a couple of things within the column and kind of have you expand on them but one of them seemed to me the classic example of the law of unintended consequences this is something dave has written about in his columns about the situation in that um, what ends up happening basically is, um, you, you know, the universities always intend to pay for these things, to raise the mm-hmm. money. And then what ends up happening is the students themselves end up having to pay for this, whether they want to go to the mm-hmm. games or not. You get student activities mm-hmm. fees raised. And what ends up happening is that the athletic administrators themselves end up making a good bit more money. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to kind of use that paradigm to have you expound on and it's particularly relevant today because we're in the middle of a septa strike, the effect of traffic, not only around Temple, but throughout the city. You make the point that, um, you know, there's a there's a major artery, you know, that cuts through mm-hmm. the city that's going to be affected by this stadium if it were to go up. Yeah, so uh, not only would this stadium occupy two blocks, but it would necessitate closing um, 15th, 15th Street. Street. You know, I, I had read all these stories about the Temple Stadium. I'd seen the maps that we published in the paper, but it didn't hit me until I went there. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, they would close 15th Street. And um, so, you know, of course, we had Broad Street's the center of Philadelphia. It has the heaviest traffic. It's mm-hmm. two-way. People use that. But both 15th, which is to the west, and 13th, which is to the east, are you know the the kind of um the overflow streets right when broad jams up people go on to 15th or 13th depending on whether you're going north or south um it's really really they're really really important streets and and 15th street is important because um it goes it feeds directly into 676 so what i saw that i I thought that's like a total Mm -hmm. non-starter um a couple years ago, Temple wanted to close a piece of 13th Street to enlarge its campus and ultimately was shot down mm-hmm. for that. I think if you can't close 13th Street, you can't close 15th Street. Now, I didn't write this in the column, but when all, you know, when all this came together for me, um, 
my first thought was um, this this effort by Temple to, to build a stadium has to be a ruse to improve its negotiating position with the link. That's what I thought. <laughs> yep. It, you know, because it is just, you know, so, so outrageous. Um, you know, I can't prove that. There's, they spent uh, $1.5 yeah. That's a right. lot to spend. Just to bluff. <laughs> just to bluff. So who knows? It's also a lot to spend to have the people you're paying that money tell you you can't build the stadium. You know, like right. you're paying $1.5 million for them to sign off on your idea, right? I would think. Yeah. So, you know, in the end, I didn't end up making that argument in the piece, but... You know, it is in the back of my mind. Is is this part of a bluff? Um, yeah, it's interesting. the the other The other aspect that you got into, um, and and I made the mistake, or I guess if you want to call it that, of going through and reading some of the comments <laughs> on the online version of your column. That was a mistake. Yeah, was um, you know, the idea that well, the the stadium would improve the neighborhood. I mean, <laughs> look at look at the condition of North Philadelphia, and so, you know. It, there are people there, however, who you found who have been living there a very long time, mm-hmm. A, and B, there are some terrific structures there, some yeah. terrific houses yeah, there. Yeah, you know, this was a very, um, uh, well, North Philadelphia, you know, developing in the in the late 19th century was, you know, when people got out of, you know, these poor immigrant neighborhoods in South Philly, they went to North Philly mm-hmm. and they built really grand houses and all these, you know, big factory owners built these mansions and, um, uh, you know, wealthy middle class people right. built big houses and, and there's fabulous housing stock in, in North Philadelphia. And of course, we know that it's it's suffered a lot um, over the years, um, but um, it was a place where the black middle class moved to. Um, in, in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And, um, you know, it's astonishing how many people are still there. Yeah. Um, it has a really storied history. Um, lots of famous people. Um, uh, Bill Gray, who, right. who, who uh, was a member of Congress and I, I believe the majority mm-hmm. leader, came from that neighborhood. Um, Helen Dixon, who was the first black obstetrician in Philadelphia. Louis Messiah, who's a well-known uh, filmmaker, still lives in the house where he grew mm-hmm. up. It's astonishing how many people live in the houses where they grew up. Yeah. Uh, Karen Warrington, who's uh, an aide to um, Bob Brady, mm-hmm. the congressman, lives there. Um, all sorts of people. And um, yes, the neighborhood the neighborhood has actually um, taken a beating from what I call the dormification of the neighborhood, because all these, um, as Temple has become more of a residential school, all these developers have rushed in uh, mm-hmm. to buy up housing and renovate housing for students, and um, that's taken its toll on the neighborhood. But, um, you know, it's not true that there's no neighborhood there. Mm-hmm. Are, are most of the, the uh, people that you talk to homeowners or home renters? Homeowners. Um, you know, I... You know, maybe this was a little self-selecting, but I walked around to houses that had the no stadium signs mm-hmm. in the window, and they tended to be homeowners. I I also went to some community meetings, and of course they, they would draw homeowners. Um, you know, this isn't to say there aren't some poor people there, but you know, um, they deserve to live there in mm-hmm. in, in peace as well. Um, uh, the renters are mostly Temple students. Yeah, it's interesting. I th- it would be interesting to 
speak with some of the temple board members that insist this is going to be a positive for the community and ask how they would feel if Gladwin decided right to build a stadium mm-hmm. right next to the uh you know little gas station there yeah. at the crossroads you know i mean i this is classic not in my backyard type right. of thinking and i think you know not to get not to get too uh second level on it but yeah you know when you look at store there's already an antagonistic relationship between temple students and the community mm-hmm. as you mm-hmm. i went to LaSalle. Mm-hmm. Um, i went to LaSalle. Mm-hmm. i spent several nights at temple throughout my four years at LaSalle, mm-hmm. and i'm sure i did things that i would not like people doing in my neighborhood mm. do you know what i'm saying yeah, i mean yeah. it's college kids are not in, enjoyable people to be around on friday and saturday nights mm-hmm. you know um they're mm-hmm. loud drunk mm-hmm. yeah um, and now you're extending that to saturday afternoon and, and when you look well. at it and again like when you look at the the i mean what, what was the biggest story in our paper last week right the, the, the malay on, uh, the ma- yeah and and i think that the only thing that building a temple can temp, yeah, building a stadium can do is increase that us versus them mentality especially when you know going in to that people the neighborhood does not want it there and you're going to build it there anyway and then you're going to wonder you know why where where this you know friction comes from mm-hmm. not necessarily an architecture issue but I mean, it's definitely a people issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people do feel like they're being pushed out. Um, there has been a conversation, um, you know, what can Temple do for the neighborhood? Um, you know, what kind of give backs? And there has been a little bit of a discussion about uh, creating um, a Temple administered demonstration elementary school like Penn, Penn mm-hmm. Runs. Um, the Sadie Alexander School and Drexel's about to start one in mm-hmm. its neighborhood. Um, you know, this isn't just about football or football stadiums. This is about big, powerful institutions that have big footprints mm-hmm. on their neighborhood. And we've seen the exact same tensions with Penn and Drexel and, and LaSalle, as you mentioned. It's not unique to Temple. Especially, you know, when campuses, when colleges were like two or three buildings, you know, it was fine that yeah. they were mixed up in, in urban neighborhoods. I went to NYU. There's, there's another school, mm-hmm. you know, that is like an 800-pound gorilla mm-hmm. um, on the neighborhood. So when NYU was a couple of buildings and, you know, all sorts of other things were woven in around it, it was fine when NYU decided to be a, a residential campus school or when Temple decided to be a residential campus school and they began acquiring vast amounts of real, of real estate and, you know, uh, sort of draw, draw, drawing borders around its campus, uh, that makes things a lot more difficult for the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, that's I, mean, I think that's a great point because that has been, you know, when you talk to proponents of the stadium, Temple students, board members. What are the fa- have you talked to any faculty? Um, um, I have talked to some faculty. Um, is there eight? Is they? I don't think they're crazy about it because I think you know um, the faculty are very worried it's going to uh, siphon money away from academics. Which and history? Which history says it will? Yeah, right. But anyway, to continue my thought, um, <clears throat> Temple is almost getting to a point where 
they want to have their cake and eat it too with regards to creating a campus versus being in a city. They're in a city and mm. they can't change that. They, when you talk to students, board members, uh, some faculty, they'll tell you, go up and walk around. You know, Temple isn't what it used to be. There's a campus now. It's, it's nice to walk around, which is great, but that's not the way you, you can't really do that in a densely populated urban city. You know, I mean, like, well, Penn has done the same thing, and, and Drexel has done the same thing. I mean, as a, you know, if I were a student going to Temple to you know deciding whether to go to Temple today, it looks great. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that but it, that comes at a cost. It comes you know? at a cost, right? Yeah. No, Temple looks better than it ever ever has, and and this they're building a, new, a fantastic new library, and there's going to be um, a big campus green in the middle of this new mm-hmm. campus they created. It's going to be fabulous, but you can't for, then claim for Temple students. But yeah, but then you, you you can't then claim that this is going to be great for the community and that you're an integral part of this community because right. you're creating something. What you're doing is you're walling your, the, yeah, yeah you're walling yourself off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's almost like the Middle Ages where the manor is getting walled off from mm-hmm. from where all the peasants work. Yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, the only positive that could, that could come out of it is if they if they decided to build the thing out of those light posts that they built. <laughs> in on, down Broad then Street, which, which was another column that yeah. Inga Saffron wrote, and my God, yeah, yeah. Actually, let's talk about that for a second. Okay. What, what are they thinking? I don't know. What are those things? Uh, you know, I don't know. That Whose idea what, was that? Uh, you know that. Um, what what do they what do they say say like um, successes have a million parents and failures are, are failures an orphan or orphans? That's an orphan. Yeah. Um, Good yeah. luck getting somebody to admit that they're responsible. But, but in, in, you know, and I know that's not a temple initiative, but nothing ever, nothing on this scale ever goes according to plan. No. I thought Frank, if I may yeah. appraise Frank, Frank Absolutely. Patrick. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the, the piece that he wrote, um, and I, uh, I'm, I'm misremembering, which he went out to the Midwest. Akron. Akron, he went to Akron. right. And it was the University of Akron, right? Yes. And he, he, he looked at the uh, what happened to that project where they spent a, a ton of money building a football stadium and then nobody showed up. Yep. And, and, and now they're in the hole for a whole lot of money. I thought that was an incredible story about, yeah. you know, the danger of all this. Um, and frankly, it happens. Like, that's, Akron is a case, one of many case studies. I mean, these things don't pay for themselves. And it goes all the way back to, you know, what did people say about Lincoln Financial Field and Citizens Bank Park at the time that they were opened? It's going to be good for the community. It's going to be a, a net positive mm-hmm. for the budget. We got a World Series. We also got no buses in the city right now. We've got uh, right. no books in the city right now for students. We've got, you know, a crumbling infrastructure. Yeah. And it's like, it's where, where those, do you it's, think? What, like, where do you think this money that you went put to the stadium? Do you think it just was going to sit in a bank somewhere and yeah. like didn't you know? It's one of it's one of those issues that that to be honest, if you're red or you're blue, if you're Republican or you're Democrat, or whatever, it should be one that kind of unites everybody. Mm-hmm. Is this idea of like these things never pay for themselves? Whether it's a stadium on a college campus, whether it's a, a stadium or a baseball park in a city, you know. No, I hate to defend the link, but um, um, so the city, you know, sunk a lot of money yeah. into that, mm-hmm. um, as did the state. Now. Um, People, um, people in the city's uh, economic development departments, tell me that the link is actually paying for itself in terms of all the wage tax that the city gets from all these uh, well-paid football players. Mm. Actually, exceeds 
the money that the city sunk into that stadium. So that's, you know, that's hard to believe. The problem with that argument is, you know, that's based on on, on the assumption that the Eagles would have left Philadelphia. Right. right. So the city was already getting the wage tax. By investing in the stadium, they continue to get the wage tax. Would they Would they have really left the city? Those are questions. That, that's a question. Yeah, and I would be curious if they're if, so. If they're saying just the wage tax alone pays for it, th- you know, I'd have to see some. I mean, I, I would yeah. have to see I don't, I their see the numbers. numbers because I'm, I'm actually just repeating what the right. ex- economic development people say in defense of investing in the link. Um, and it, then, like, if they're counting, like, like for example, there was a rental car tax that was enacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if they're counting that, but again, you could have used that. You could still make a rental car tax and not build a stadium. You could right. use it to pay for the school. Right, <laughs> you right, pay right, for right. For schools. The right. problem is, right. you know, f- unfortunately, in our country, football unites us. We're more united in our support of football than we are in, you know, if mm-hmm. than our support of schools. You know, I mean, right. uh, you know, people don't. A proposition that says a, a proposition that levies a tax on rental cars in order to fund the school district mm-hmm. is not going to or a referendum is not going to draw the turnout that a, a referendum mm-hmm. to fund Lincoln Financial Field yeah. is going to. And that's How crazy. Yeah. Is that? You know, I mean, architecture wise, what, what like actual architecture? What, what have you what do you know about this project? Um, what's it going to look like? What, what do they hope it will um, look like? When will it start? That's nobody knows. I mean, what I was told was. They haven't made a decision to go forward, that everything was predicated on um, this traffic study Um, and, uh, you know, basically to see how could they handle the volumes of people, where would they come from, would they drive, would they take the train, you know, where would they tailgate. Um, So um, they don't know the answers yet, and so they don't know if they're going to take the next step. I did actually interview the architect, um, Curtis Moody, and I interviewed um, Joe Cordino, who um, is the board member who's in charge of um, this project. And he, he, he's the guy who's the head of the gallery mm-hmm. and of uh, Preet, the big um, shopping mall owner. Right. And he's on the board of, of Temple. So, you wait, know, wait, wait. When you say the gallery. He, the gallery mall. The, so, so he built Joe, that? Uh, he, he he his company owns it. Okay. Um, so he's a real estate guy, and he he's. But on I, the, I'm just saying, in terms of like rousing success stories, I'm not sure I would. If oh, I was him, I would point to the gallery. Oh, he, as, he, he he didn't he didn't build the gallery. Okay. His company acquired. Okay. 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 Um, and it, a long Sorry. time ago, the, oh, oh, you know, his expertise is real, right, right. real estate. Right. So so he's on Temple's board now. He's he's overseeing this effort. So. Um, I met with them. I met with Cordino. I met with Curtis Moody, the architect, and 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 you know, I, I've written about a lot of different stadiums of, of, of all types. I, I I reviewed the Link when it opened. I reviewed Citizens Bank Park. I I reviewed the um, uh, the the new um, Net Stadium in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. I've been to loads of stadiums, and um, so I know a little bit about you know how how stadium design works, and um, so we, you know. Curtis Moody was saying, you know, or I was asking him, you know, well, how could you mitigate its impact on the neighborhood? And and there are some methods for for doing that. You know, uh, I mentioned in my piece, you could like sink the bowl, right. which is the playing field below, below ground. That, right. That's what they did at the um, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you go when go, you go in, you go down. You go, go down, right. and the reason they did that in Brooklyn, that's a very dense urban area sure. too. And they didn't want the build the 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 um, the building to be too high, and right. so by put by 
effectively putting the playing floor below ground they they reduce the height and you yeah. could do this something similar with the football field and that would be a good thing to keep the height low um the other good thing about the um i'm blanking on the name what's the name the, the barclay center barclay barclay right the other you know the, the, barclay, the giant rusted turtle is that I, I actually <laughs> really love that building. do you really okay. yeah although i think madison square garden's underground as well yeah yes, you're right you're, yeah. but it's a very big thing above ground mm. um yeah. And of course, it's in a bigger context than, than the Barclay is. But, um, you know, the Barclay did a, some really interesting things, and, and they have retail mm-hmm. on all the street. All around it, yes. All around it. And and that's really important because one of the problems with, with a sports facility, especially football, you're only talking six games a year. Right. It is dead. So, not, so it's dead most of the time. So not only do you have this, you know, big, giant building in the middle of a fine-grained neighborhood, but... A building where nothing is happening most of the time. The Barclay, by lighting uh, its facade w- with retail, made it active when there were no games mm-hmm. going on. Um, so Temple is looking for ways to, to do that as well, and 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 they're thinking on Broad Street. Um, you know, they could put like a a classroom building, multi-story classroom building, to screen the football stadium, and they could have retail on the ground floor. So you'd always have people coming and going on Broad Street. That's pretty easy to do on Broad because it's a big street and it can take, you know, more height and and a bigger building. Then on um, 16th Street, which is on the west side of these these two blocks, which is right across from Carver High School, um... They were thinking about doing another building as screen. Um, its its use might isn't clear yet, but you know it could be uh, a building with athletic facilities. Carver High School might be able to sort of use some of those facilities. But then still, you have you know the north and the south side of the yeah. building, and I think the north side will be the most problematic because right right across the street along Norris Street is um two blocks of perfectly intact uh houses hmm. and you know basic three-story philadelphia row houses. houses and and so um that's not really a street where people are going to shop or go to stores you can't really line that with retail right. what, are you, what are you going to line that with that's that's really that's a harder proposition than broader but is it, i mean retail wise like brooklyn i think it's a gentr- it's a gentrifying area um and i think they were hope they part of the idea of building retail there was to gentrify it well it feels like the whole kind of tension of opposites that's in, in play here is that the neighborhood does not want to be gentrified do you know what i'm saying so like building retail is not necessarily accomplishing the goal right your, you know, your it's gen- stated goal the word gentrify is such a um complex and emotional right, well, let me, let, me put, let me put it this way temple's goal in remaking its campus has been to create the illusion that it is not in a neighborhood like north philadelphia it's the wall itself off yeah. from that neighborhood mm-hmm. um because frankly there's kids that don't want to go to a college like mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. don't want the neighborhood people around mm-hmm. yeah um you know are they building retail shops to attract the neighborhood people? Or are they I, building I, retail shops to make it look like, you know, you're in Yuppieville and, and sure Collegeville, that, uh, you know? I'm sure it's the latter. But, I mean, yeah. that retail is going to serve students um, almost certainly. That doesn't mean the people in the neighborhood couldn't have some benefit. I mean, 
people do go to you know grocery stores and you know yeah. um movie theaters and um you know so it's tricky um i use this word dormification in in my in my piece because um i think that's worse than gentrification you know I think people in that neighborhood, if they saw houses being fixed up for families, mm-hmm. yeah. even if they look different from them, I think they would feel better about that because it would s- stabilize and, and strengthen that neighborhood mm-hmm. as, as a family neighborhood. Right. And um, You're you bringing would, in people who are would be invested in the neighborhood. Right. And you wouldn't have the kind of nuisances that you have right. with, with more transient people. So um, I think dormification is way worse than gentrification. And um, and I would agree it's a more accurate word. Yeah, yeah. So um, we want to wrap this up because we've been, you know, and we ver- we're very much appreciative, uh, very appreciative uh, to you for coming on the show. I just have one more question. Mm-hmm. I'm dying to, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. ask you this, and this is an inside journalism thing. Mm-hmm. Tell us tell us what it's like, and I, you get this asked this a million times, I know, I don't care. Tell us what it's like to win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it was a great surprise. And this happened in 2014. 2014. And, you know, I was at my desk. I was probably on deadline. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it was, uh, well, I think I, I may have told you this funny story. Uh, I'm Jewish, and it was um, the first night at Passover. Mm-hmm. I was... Um, Hungry? I was, I, had, <laughs> I, I was having 10 people come for dinner. Mm-hmm. And I was actually trying to sneak out uh, of the office a little early. Uh, and so you had no idea that I it was even no a idea. possibility. And um, did did you know you had been nominated? That is that they had submitted your work. Oh, I knew I, my work had been submitted. I've okay. been a finalist, um, right? You know, a runner-up three times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the, in the you know they pick th- three people. Yeah, that's one one distinction that gets made. You know, and it's people say, oh, you got nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Well. You get nominated for a lot of awards where your editor or whoever might submit your material. There's a difference between that and being, with the Pulitzer, a nominated finalist, which mm. is what you're talking about. You were three times were a nominated finalist, a runner-up. Right, right. Three times I was a runner-up. So um, people started calling me. You're the, like the Eagles. They, yeah. They started calling me the Susan Lucci of, uh, <laughs> of the Pulitzers. Of, of the Pulitzers. Uh, you're right in Mike's wheelhouse with your popular cultural references yeah <laughs> i always make fun of him because i don't really understand the things that he says but i'm, I do, I'm with you Inga. don't worry i yeah. know who susan lucci is i don't know she's a soap opera star who, right but who i don't know oh. nom- she, she was nominated she was a finalist for the daytime emmy award like 19 times before she finally won oh, okay yeah. so um I wasn't sally I, field like that too i'm sure lots of people who, yeah who, do, who don't win yeah. i mean um you know you can only take prizes so far. That's but, right. Um, but I actually was kind of enjoying the fact that I never won because I was becoming like famous for not winning. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, but then I won. And so it has been totally great. Um, mm-hmm. And How um, did dinner turn out that night? How did the Seder turn out? It was such out? a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. I can yeah. only imagine. Yeah. Um, well, Inga, thank you so much for joining well, us. Was, this, was, was, this was excellent. It was lots of fun. Are you going to continue covering this story? Uh, I or writing? Like, are you yeah. going to write about it anymore? I mean, I yeah. know that you're not you're not a news writer. I'm, um, a, I'm a columnist, so I have uh, you know it's it's like a great gig where you like I de- I get to decide. But mm-hmm. you know I, what I was saying before, like I like to catch the wave, mm-hmm. so um, I'm very strategic about deciding what which columns I'm going to do, and you know I look around, I see what's coming. So maybe when they re- release the traffic study, maybe it'll be really interesting, or maybe something else will happen. Um, but uh, no, I don't think it's over. 
um, by any means. And, um, you know, I think, I think this is a really major project that will, its effects will ripple out to the whole city. And um, it's a big story. Um, it deserves a lot of coverage. I agree. Well, so do I. And when you write about it next, we will have you back on. Okay. Um, and Don't wait until then. Wait, what? Maybe, uh, maybe there'll be something else sports related. <laughs> Anytime. I mean, seriously, we could probably do an architecture, sports architecture. We segment. could. I mean, we especially in this city with Frank. I what's, mean, Franklin, your, what's your favorite stadium? Franklin Field. Franklin Field. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I really enjoy Citizens Bank Park, mm-hmm. at least locally. I mean, there are any number of baseball stadiums that, mm-hmm. that are um, really kind of thrilling in a way to mm-hmm. be at because mm-hmm. of the setting. But I, I mean, I like Citizens Bank Park mm-hmm. locally quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I, just, I don't know. I just think Franklin Fields, like I'm a very, uh, mm-hmm. I like the old school. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- know, I love feel. Franklin Field too. Um, yeah. Um, the Palestra, obviously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But I don't know if that that's more architecture. I don't know if that's old. architecturally driven as much as it's atmospherically driven mm-hmm. when, when, you know, and nostalgia driven too, mm-hmm. when you have two local teams and heated rivalries and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. um, just the nature of the layout. I like, um, I like, I like the, I mean, I love city hall hall, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mormon temple is a fascinating building mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really like almost all of the churches, Mm-hmm. You know, just because of the stories yeah. that are behind. I, I lived in for a couple of years. I lived in Queen Village, mm-hmm. um, and the row the row houses down there to me are are real interesting. The like the the you know brick with the old wooden frame, the old mm-hmm. wooden window frames, and mm-hmm. you know, like I don't know. I just to me anything that in, evokes uh, memories of. Well, you like things that are authentic. I do. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I like Mike Sealski. <laughs> That's me. I'm authentic all over. And uh, with that, we should uh, we should wrap up. Inga, thank you for classing up our podcast. We appreciate My pleasure. it. Pleasure. All um, right. All right. And we'll talk to you all nice next to week. See you. Okay. Take care. Thank you very much. That was perfect.